Ma Coco? Aye. For Maui, it's a new beginning. With honor and deep respect, we're moving forward. We're ready to get people back to work. We all have to do our part, and we'll make this happen. Working together. We are ready to work. Ready to serve. All ready. 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 We are ready. For more information, visit makokomoe.com. The Mothership Podcast is sponsored by Hawaii Surrogacy Center. Start your family with Hawaii's leading surrogacy agency. Mothership Podcast. It's Steph, Noli, and Brooke here this week. Super, super excited, guys, um, to have our guest today. Um, I've known her through a networking group that we're in, so I'm very grateful to know her. Her name is Deborah Allen, and she is a private investigator, amongst many other things that we're going to talk about tonight. Um, she's known as the Busy PI, and she owns a gosh, a bunch, a couple of investigation businesses in Arizona and California for the past two decades. Um, she also now owns 808 Investigations here in Hawaii for about the last eight or nine months um, after she and her husband moved here in 2019. So super happy she's here. She does such important work. So um, previously she was also a deputy sheriff in San Bernardino County in California. Um, she had assignments in jail, patrol, crimes against children, homicide detective, and hostage negotiations. So that's crazy interesting. She was a senior district attorney investigator in Riverside County, California. She's retired law enforcement. She is a California private investigator, obviously. A polygraph examiner, so no lying today, guys. <laughs> and other jobs like mediator, cold case investigator, guest lecturer, to name a few. She's also reunited over 5,000 families uh, separated by adoption or unknown parent or a missing heirs case. Um, and she's going to be, she's appeared or will be appearing soon on the Stars Network, the History Channel, and soon the Nancy Grace Bloodline um, Detective, that show as well. So super busy. On top of all that, she has a husband who is a dentist. She has two children, three stepchildren, seven grandchildren. And from what I hear this morning, when we were talking a brand new grand puppy. <laughs> so she does all of that. So who feels like we're not doing enough? But <laughs> Hi. Joking, but yes. I know, wow. but welcome, awesome. Deborah. We're Thank so you. excited to have you here. Thank you. Thank you for the warm welcome. Yes, I've been on the planet a while. That's why I was able to accomplish so much, right? So that is quite an impressive uh -huh. resume, I must say. Oh my goodness. So, 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 okay. So, how long have you been doing all of these things? Well, uh, how it all started? Yeah. And how long? Okay. Yeah. Well, so when I was 16 years old, my parents, their home was burglarized. 
And I was intrigued by how they caught the person that actually was somebody I went to high school with uh, who had skipped class that day or skipped school and uh, actually had taken some of my personal belongings. So I instantly uh, did not like that way that felt. Um, and so was really scared and I didn't like not being powerful. And so then I got into, I got married and later, and then I got an, into an exercise business and I had someone stalking me before it was called stalking. So I had like messages on my car, messages on my, uh, back then it was a voice recorder in your home. It was like 1979, 80. And I didn't like the way that felt again. I had that whole victimization. People are watching you and you don't know who they are. And I didn't like that. So I, um, I asked my neighbors who were police officers, I said, you know, how are they going to solve this? I want this person caught. I'm scared, you know? And so how they caught the person was through what they called a trap and trace back then, where they would record off of a phone line and track the actual phone lines back to find out who it was. And so th during that whole process, I was very intrigued by how that all transpired and how they were able to catch the janitor of the building that I was teaching at. That's who it was. So that whole process, I, I didn't want to be powerless anymore. So I went into the reserve academy. My children were young at the time. So I went into levels three, two, and one. And so I was able to be a deputy sheriff as a reserve and do it on my time. Um, and then I did that until my youngest one went to kindergarten. And then I went into the actual sheriff's academy and became a full-fledged uh, deputy sheriff in 1986. So yeah, that's, that's wow. the background in a nutshell. So when you feel like you're not powerful, you got to do something about it, right? So nobody taught me that. I just knew that's what I needed to do for myself. I needed to gain back the power and the control. So didn't like that feeling. So I have a real deep empathy for people that are victimized because I remember how that feels all, even all these years later. Yeah. But it seems too that, I mean, your background is so extensive. It seems too that you have a passion for seeking justice for others too. And I do. And I, do. I, don't, I don't like people um, you know, Brooke will tell you it's the downtrodden. I don't like anybody being walked on. I don't want anybody not having answers for themselves. Um, I, I just want to seek those answers for people. And so people can rest and so people can move forward because you're stuck if you can't get those answers. But, you know, yeah. And, um, you know, I mean, a lot of people, I would say, and I assume don't really know much about private investigators. I mean, you don't see that type of business being advertised or that service being advertised widely. Um, mostly when something happens, you call the police. So can you explain to people listening what the difference is between the service that a police uh, department would provide uh, versus a private investigator? Yeah. So what a police do is they're the first responder, right? The immediate responder who takes care of and controls the situation, whether it's a missing child or a homicide. So they're the first on scene. Sometimes it's medics first, but they take and control the scene. But what happens is if it's something that needs investigation further, then it goes to the detective bureau and then they roll out the detectives and they work the case. But what happens, I was a district attorney investigator, so I know how this process works. So what happens is that detectives get busy with the next case. And so they don't, they aren't able to go back and you know, talk to everyone and get all new information and be on top of that because they're already, you know, stumbling up onto the next one. When we were in homicide, I mean, we would be on a call out and as soon as we would, you know, get home or sometimes not even get home, we're on our next call. And so when you work for a busy county that happens, this is a busy state, right? And so they don't have the manpower, they don't have the time to go back. And there's always 
no case is ever really finished, even when it's going to trial. So sometimes new information comes up during that time that needs to be investigated and the police honestly just don't really have the time. So the criminal defense attorneys will hire a private investigator or the families were. Well, if there's not, you know, they're not getting answers to questions that they have. So our sources are either an attorney would contact us or the family saying, hey, something's not happening with my case. Can you look into it? Can you interview these other people or re-interview people? Because sometimes people are scared to talk to the police, but then they'll talk to us. Are all private investigators equal or are there different levels of expertise, uh, different levels of experience, or even sometimes people that are scammers and claim to be private investigators and aren't even really doing the legwork? Well, we kind of uh, police our own. So if we ever know that, we kind of you know alert the other person or that board um, to what is going on. And I sat on the licensing board in Arizona before I came here. And it took a year and a half for me to get my license here, even though I was you know, uh, licensed in two states currently and have been for 20 years, they make it difficult um, and ex they want, for a reason. They wanna make sure that the person is the right person coming in. So I was the first person in like five years to get my license here. So that isn't because that isn't, I'm the first person testing and going through the process, they just make it difficult. So, so what would you say is like your biggest case and maybe most, you know, exciting one or challenging case that you've ever had? There's a lot, but there's a current one that I can talk about. I'm gonna be filming for Bloodline Detectives and it's a Nancy Grace production. And so uh, that is a case that I helped somebody who wanted to find their birth mother. I found their birth mother. And unfortunately she was murdered in 1976 in Orange County, California. And so when I, called and I looked at, I, mean, I got the death certificate and I found out which agency it was because it was only like a little blurb in a newspaper. That's it about this woman being, you know, a victim of a homicide. So I contacted the cold case department and they hadn't looked at the case and they were honest about it. They hadn't looked at it because again, remember that shiny light, something new is happening and they've got to look at that. And there was no family pushing. She was an only child. The victim was an only child. And so her parents were deceased. Her husband was deceased. So there was nobody contacting the police departments and saying, hey, what's going on with my, you know, my case. So when we came on board, you know, technology has changed a lot and it's not their fault, but, you know, let's talk about what's in evidence now. I have a lot of resources from people that I know that have new technology in solving crimes. I said, let's, can I put you in touch with this person and this person? And um, so again, squeaky wheel. Now we're the squeaky wheel, right? Because now we have her daughter, which they didn't even know she had had a daughter when, when the victim was 16 years old. Her name is, um, her name was Leslie Penrod Harris. So you can Google it now because move forward through the pressure, they actually read, uh, examined her DNA that was left with her body and uh, found the suspect. And he was living in Louisiana. Uh, he was on a dating website. So women be careful, men be careful. And he, uh, his DNA matched and he, Lo and behold, he, like I kind of said, when I first looked into the case, her body was disposed at a military base about 25 miles away from where she walked away from a restaurant when she was talking to her husband and they got into an argument and she walked away. Well, this is 1976. It's only taxi cabs back then. There's no Uber. There's no other way to get back. She actually was living in Honolulu eight days prior. They had moved from Honolulu back to Orange County, California to with a job transfer for him. And so they were living in a hotel while they were looking for their, their place to live. 
So she walked outside the restaurant. We don't know what next happened, but we do know now by the suspect's DNA that he lived within five miles of that shopping center, that mall where she was abducted from. And her body was found at the military base where he worked. So, you know, when people panic uh, and it's not a planned homicide, you know, they don't have time to bury or they don't have time to dispose of the body. So he did something quick and he left her outside the Marine Corps base. And then she was discovered within a couple hours, which was good for the case and evidence because, you know, it wasn't like her body had been, you know, decomposing. So, yeah. So anyway, we have justice for her. I had, when I first got the case, I told the daughter, you know, my client, I said, I am not going to let this go. I'm like a dog with a bone. We're going to find who did this. And I went to the cemetery in Santa Ana and I went, brought flowers to her mother's grave. And I said, I made a little promise. I said, I will be back with justice for you. Well, and her husband had been accused of the murder all that time, you know, 20 years. And then he actually went insane and he never married and he was unable to even care for himself because he was always accused of being the murderer. So it's really sad. It destroyed both of those lives. Meanwhile, the defendant is living his best life, right? In Louisiana. And yeah. So I have a little end story to this is that Mr. Eddie Lee Anderson, the suspect, known suspect, um, DNA match suspect actually died in custody awaiting trial, not this December, but December, 2020. And his cause of death was COVID. So I don't know how to feel about that, except I, I have my own way to feel about that. But, um, but it's, you know, we have to take her daughter back now. I'm going to be taking her daughter back with the film crew and taking her to the cemetery. Um, and then also meeting her in person. She's a client that I never met in person, somebody that lived out of state. And um, when I worked her case, it was always by phone or, or by Zoom. So I actually get to meet her and I'm glad. So, yeah, so that's the most recent one. So we're filming that on Valentine's Day in California. And when is it going to be out? Probably, you know, summer. It usually takes about eight months for production. And that's on the Star Network? No, that one's going to be on, um, I think it's on Lifetime. It's, um, I can get the information for you, but it's called Bloodline Detectives and it's Nancy Grace, but it's on one of the other uh, shows. But Star's, oh, go ahead. Is it going to have that Hawaii connection mentioned? I hope so. I hope so because it's important. She actually, I would love to know, you know, if your viewers even know, but she worked for Foremost Dairies and in downtown and she was a secretary. So I'd love to know people that knew her back then. They lived here for quite a few years. And there's, we have pictures of her from his family um, of different tourist sites here on the island. Um, so I'd love to know a little bit more about her life here. I just, I'm real vested into her. I wanna know, and I want people to know that her life mattered and she had a daughter, you know, I don't think her husband even knew she had the daughter because it's, it's not in any of the police reports. They were dumbfounded when I told them who, what the connection was. So, yeah. Wow. Want to know what the fight was about? Do Their fight know? at the restaurant. <laughs> yeah, we know now. The fight in the restaurant was because she wanted a white picket fence home and he wanted like a condo with, like they lived in, in Hawaii, but he wanted, um, you know, she wanted the picket fence and the, the home, you know, so that was what their fight was. So he, I mean, so, something so simple, right? Yeah. Um, but it was enough for her to want to walk away and then things happened, yeah. Wow, and like yeah. you said, Deborah, it, it, it impacted it's her life, his her husband, her, the, the daughter suffered, right? Mm -hmm. But to bring back justice for her family, I think is, if we can get that connection, that would be really, really cool yeah. stuff. Well, they were here for quite a few years. He worked for Honeywell 
corporation. Oh, okay. Foremost dairies. Yeah. And he'd come here. I mean, he was a, a big executive for Honeywell. So it wasn't, and then he became this man who couldn't even, you know, tie his shoes according to his family. Mm-hmm. So it's very sad what can happen when, you know, they don't get answers and the, you know, regret in his mind knowing that they had this simple argument and she walked away and he didn't go outside and follow her, right? Because who would have thought? So mm-hmm. Orange County, California, nice neighborhood, you know. So it I mean, sounds like it sounds like that case is is pretty much um, closed. Are you putting a call out for um, Hawaii witnesses or or connections? No, I would just like to know. I mean, it's not um, it's not vital to the case because it is closed. But I just would like to know who her friends were, who her coworkers were that worked at Foremost Dairy with her. Um, maybe they might have pictures. So here's what happens is because she died so long ago, the only pictures that we have of her in the police file were the ones that the uh, husband had provided. Um, so and it just happened to be that because they were building a profile for her. So I was able to get those pictures for uh, the daughter. But she was um, she was born to a, a mother who was 16 years old and it was a mixed uh, race family. And the both families said, this isn't gonna happen, you're young and the baby's gonna be put up for adoption. And then she waited, the child waited till, adult, waited till she was in her 40s to make that decision to go find her, you know, birth family and then that. But here's another good part of the story. You want to hear this part? Sure. So every child has a mother and a father at some point, right? So uh, I found the father. I found her birth father. And he was, I'm trying not to cry, because he was so overjoyed by knowing that his daughter, he didn't know how to work, look for her. He didn't know what to do a simple man, but wrote me the most beautiful letter um, of thanking me for finding her. And he had moved on and married, you know, when he got older and he always wondered what happened to Leslie and never could find her. But, you know, he didn't have the resources back then. Yeah. He carried a picture of her in his wallet uh, for decades. Yeah. 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 So it's a good, I mean, so now she has her father and he had other children. And so she actually has siblings because she was raised by herself. So, yeah. Gosh, I can tell that that brings you a, a sense of peace to knowing that others are at peace because so you've helped them. Yeah. yeah, thankful too. And I, I wanted to ask if, you know, is, is the training, I, I mean, I see your resume. I mean, you're a polygraph specialist. Um, I don't you do went, that anymore, but I, yeah, I am trained. Yeah, but you've definitely, you know, gone through a lot in terms of, you know, holding different positions and uh, going through training and schooling um, to, I guess, fine tune your skills. But how much of that is important to your job versus having just a innate sense or gut, you know, being able to quickly when you're interviewing someone or, or, or investigating a scene, you know, you know, you know, you can tell that there are differences or that there's a red flag here. Do you, do you think you have a, a sort of talent like that within yourself or if you could speak more about that? Yeah, you definitely have to have that curiosity factor because um, that's what drives me. You know, I'm going to put it together, you know, move out of my way. Let me pull up my sleeves, get everybody out of the way. I'm going to get this right. I'll do it, you know? So yeah, you have to have that. You have to have that curiosity. There are a lot of police officers that really don't have that curiosity and private investigators that don't have that curiosity. They just go through the motions, but the majority of us are, you know, diligent about what we do and um, and have that curiosity and don't let, you know, cases go to bed without us continuing to think about them. So. Has intuition played into 
Oh yeah. Some of your cases too. Definitely. Fine. Yeah, definitely. And how to speak to people, how to talk to um, victims and also uh, children that were adopted. My, my father was adopted in 1908. And so that's, <laughs> When I became a police officer in 86, he goes, well, you can find my birth family, you know? So, you know, technology wasn't that great then. So it was this long drive of us, you know, trying to figure it out. He knew who his mother was, but she had rehomed him several times to different families. So I was able to find his father and, you know, he lived in the same town we did. Um, wow. They were both from Indiana, but they both ended up in California and he lived just a couple miles away. But when I found him through his cousin's DNA, well, we can talk about DNA, um, then uh, I showed, I, they sent me a picture of their uncle Charlie, right? And so I sent it to my, my sons, you know, who are in their forties. And I said, I said, I just sent the picture. I didn't say anything else. And uh, they're like, when did grandpa ever wear a hat? It wasn't, it was his father. You know, he was a Stetson hat uh, salesman. And so he always wore a Stetson hat. My dad never wore a hat, but his father did. But he looked so much like my father that my kids instantly thought that was their grandfather. So, and I'm wondering, like, do you have like a sixth sense you think intuition wise, like there's something else that brings you to these, these feelings and these intuitions do you think you do because it I, sounds I like you kind of do I know I do yeah I know <laughs> and I and I you know I fine-tune that too I, I pay attention in the beginning um I didn't pay attention but now I, I really pay attention um to to you know much you know working that that thought and continuing until I get the answer until best I can not, not all cases are solved of course but um I, I keep going until I feel satisfied do you like to watch documentaries on? <laughs> no, <laughs> no. <laughs> like crime shows or detective shows? No. Well, well, well I mean, documentaries. So, like, like oh. real, real life. You know, oh, documentaries. Yeah, I watched one today about um, about camp. Um, well, camp something, but it was about uh, a Jewish uh, uh, Nazi internment um, location. It was on on uh, Netflix. What was it called? Camp something. Anyway, I watched it today. It was intriguing. Shows like that. Yeah. But not, you know, uh, although I do watch, now that I'm here, I am watching during COVID. I watched all the Magnum shows because I knew I was getting my <laughs> license here. And then the new series, which I like because he's cute, right? The characters are cool. I mean, I don't know if you heard about that uh, documentary on Netflix um, about this married couple and the husband ends up killing the entire family, like the wife and the two daughters. And he buries their bodies in this oil refinery field that he worked at. And so the documentary showed like his interview being interviewed right away by the police responding officers via body cam. And so you could kind of see his demeanor and just how he's responding. And then like how he ended up lying and just fabricating the whole thing. I mean, I actually know that case very well, and I actually know her best friend. Oh my gosh! Um, I've met here on the island. Um, Brooke, you probably know her too, but we can talk out later. But she was actually <laughs> wow, her, really? Her featured on the show. Yeah, I can talk to you. She would love to, because we're trying to keep you know that story alive. Because there's that's something that can happen to you know anyone's home. He, he doesn't look like a killer, right? So, yeah. well neither did scott peterson or some of the other ones you know ted bundy even right mm -hmm. 
-hmm. actually have a girlfriend that I met. She actually has a technology um, that we use in law enforcement. And she actually knew Ted Bundy before it all started. And he used to take her kids to the plunge or the, uh, the swimming pool. And her son came home one day and said, I don't want to go with Ted anymore because he plays shark. Well, so when she asked, what's that mean? He would bite the kids in the water. It's like prior to anything else happening, right? I was like, but then it was happening during that time because her it was his it was her girlfriend's boyfriend was Ted Bundy, and he would go in his bedroom and uh, I can have her come talk to you too. She's a fascinating person, but he would go in his bedroom for days, and now we know why it was that he was you know uh, after the fact of some of the murders. But yeah, you never know. Be careful out there. Never Bundy, know. Jeffrey Dahmer, and then the Green yeah. River Killer. Green River, right? In Washington State. That's why, I mean, where we went to college. And I just remember being in the dentist's office and picking up the Time Magazine because it was on the front cover there and just so many victims, but still unsolved for so many years. And, oh yeah. Deborah, so, I wanted to ask you if you could share uh, that story um, about that quit. It was about that guy, and I think he was in the South, and he was kind of running a place where he would house the women who were the younger women mm -hmm. who were expecting and didn't have any place else to go. And, and then there was a, other coincidences that were happening, right? Yeah. With yeah, definitely. Can you share yeah. that? It's intriguing. Yeah. yeah. So there was a man who um, developed what they call sofa art, where they, you know people would have a big picture behind their couch rather than little pictures like Victorian houses would have. He created that whole big scene. You know that was his claim to fame was like big big sofa pictures. But he uh, that industry kind of died up and dried up, and so somehow he got into being a broker for babies. And he would encourage women to come to the state of Louisiana because the laws were lax there. And we're talking like 1983 to 2002 is my latest one. Um, he would bring these women to Louisiana who, you know, a lot of them were not upset about it because their families, you know, couldn't take care of them or they couldn't get welfare or they couldn't get whatever source resources, but they would bring the women to uh, these cities in Louisiana. And all of a sudden they had, you know, a hundred, 200 adoptions a year from these little tiny towns. And people started saying, what's going on? Why are all these pregnant ladies staying at this hotel here in town or staying at these houses? So then they started spreading them out thinner over the state. There was a couple of attorneys that got um, sanctioned and uh, unlicensed. People thought he was an attorney. He was not. He was, remember, that sofa art dealer. Um, but I have 86 cases. I, these I keep track of. Um, 86 cases that we've solved because of that. Um, because of one lady telling me about her adoption with her child and me finding that child and me putting the pieces together. That's how I came across it. Um, People knew about it already, but they hadn't really investigated it. And they didn't realize because they sanctioned him in like 1987 and said, don't do that anymore. Well, he continued till 2002. I have over 200 names in a database of either the birth mother looking or the child looking, but you know, not everybody wants to do their DNA. And, and when they do, you know, and both sides happen to do it, uh, we can get them together. But yeah, that I actually have a Facebook page for that as well. That's the Richard Gittleman story. And um, he, you know, some of the women, it was not good because they wanted to leave. But then what they would do is say, well, you can't leave without paying us back. You need to pay us back for, you know, the months you've been here, the doctor's care, your housing. And the women didn't have that. He would target women who were in um, like little college towns or poor areas. And he put an ad in what they used to call the penny saver. 
So a throwaway paper. So women would see this ad, are you pregnant? We can find a home for you, we'll take care of you. And then he would give them a stipend at the end so they could get their lives back together, but always tell them, if you get pregnant again, this is again, you know, early stages of birth control. And, um, and so, you know, if you get in that situation again, I'll, you can come back. And so we had actually one mother that came back 11 times and we had one mother that came back three times, but most of it was with one time and they could bring their family with them. They could bring their husband with them and he would pay them for their room and board and then give them that stipend at the end to start over. So a lot were appreciative of it, but uh, it was closed adoption. So unless they actually overheard or got a name or, you know, a little glimpses of information, they wouldn't know where their child was. And the majority of the children went to the East Coast. They went to homes in back in New Jersey, which is where his connection was. So if you know anybody that has a Louisiana birth certificate and was raised in the East Coast and it was adopted, likely that was uh, one of those children. So because my father was an adoptee, you know, I, that whole drive, you know, and then it started to be like, I knew people at work, you know, at the sheriff's department who were adopted and they're like, well, can you find, you know, okay, well, and then I'd come across clients or clients, victims, you know, and, and people I came across in interviews, it would come up. So it was like, I had a sign that said, are you adopted? Come talk to me. You know, it was kind of like, they kept coming to me, happened at the nail salon here in Hawaii too. Um, one place I, I go to, and um, I'd always kind of wanted to ask her because I could tell that she looked part Caucasian, part Vietnamese, and she was. And so she was one of the children that got left behind in 1975 when her father was in the military and the Saigon lift. So I was able to, you know, I told her, I said, why didn't you ever ask me? I've been coming in here on vacation for all these years. And, and she goes, well, I did my DNA, but I don't understand what it means. I had her father by that evening. Unfortunately, he had passed away earlier that year. But I found her sister that was born here in Hawaii and, um, and then another brother in Australia and another brother in Texas. And then that turned into her telling that story in the nail salon, which turned into other clients here since I've been here. So people overhear the story, they're happy that they got resolution to that, even though he was passed, but she had pictures and she had a sister. Yeah. How many families have you reunited? Over 5,000. Yeah. Wow. When we, when we came from, um, our, when I closed in my closed out my office building in Arizona, I had 13 of those yellow and black cases of files that it cost me 400 and something dollars to have shredded. Um, and that was just in the last, I don't know, five or seven years at that building of old cases. So, yeah. Gosh, you know, it's, it's amazing. You've solved some cases, you've reunited thousands of families. And, you know, here in Hawaii, we have some notorious unsolved cases like uh, Ji Zhao Li. She was a, a little girl who, who was selling Zippy's chili tickets for a fundraiser in Nu'uanu and that vanished. Poof, uh, never seen, no, I don't think any even witnesses. Um, that was really sad. I mean, she just disappeared. Um, I, is it Diane Suzuki? Yeah, I was going to say that. Victor, she, Crazy. You know, I, yeah, yeah. she yeah. just went missing. I, I think they found, uh, I don't know if it was blood or there was some type of struggle within the bathroom somewhere, but I mean, that's as far as they got. Um, you know, knowing what you know in your industry and your ability to solve cases, what would you say to their families out there? Are all cases solvable or unfortunately, there are cases that will never go unsolved. Should they stop looking? Well, I don't think they ever should stop looking. And I can put them in touch with other mothers that never stopped um, until we've you know, found um, 
what happened. They need to know those answers, even as bad as it may be. Um, otherwise, every person that you see at the store, you look to see, you know, is that person my, you know, my child or my, you know, um, it's, it's very difficult to tell a, a parent or, or a sibling to stop looking, you know, and those cases really bother me. The run recently too, with the little girl that was murdered in uh, Waimanalo, that really bothered me because it's solvable. This is an island. You've got a dynamic here that's different from being on the mainland. You know, they're either deceased or they're, um, they're alive and taken. They're just, they just don't vanish. That one kind of bothered me too, because with technology right now with ring doorbells and all that stuff, that should have been like something. And I'm sure they did. I'm sure the police did all that, but that's, you know, knowing what day she left, that was, that's critical. And I also said to a couple of people that I know here too, because I've made a lot of friends, but I said, it's going to get revealed. I think I might've told you before too. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. It's going to get revealed when the oldest child gets away from that family and is able to feel comfortable to release what happened because it's a horrible thing that she witnessed. Um, and so um, once that, and that's exactly what happened, right? I think she played a key role in their arrest with her revealing what they, what they did or what she claims they did. Yeah, so that's why now they're in custody and awaiting trial. But I mean, and there's that other case about the baby, um, Kiana Ancog, I believe that's her name. She was a, a baby girl that just disappeared too um, with the, the dad. Um, it was in a strange relationship with the mom. And then uh, he was, he had custody of her at the time and she was nowhere to be seen. And mm -hmm. there's been no leads. HB hasn't said anything else about that case. And I think a lot of people agree with you. I mean, in this day and age and with us being in an island. Come you on, come on. Yeah, let's do this. Well, I mean, I'm speaking. I mean, what would, what if you had a best hunch of where the holdups are, does it come to really to a lack of manpower or funding or, I mean, what's going on here? <laughs> you know. Well, I have a, a, an idea that a couple of um, the victims and I have talked about over the years, and I'd really like to make it legislation at some point that the police have five years. If it's the case has gone on for five years and you haven't solved it, let a private investigator, let somebody who's trusted into the materials. I know that, you know, they're all, the ones that only know what the cause of death is. They are, but let us go in there and get the, the interviews done and, and, you know, do the neighborhood checks. Again, people will talk to us where they won't talk to the police. Um, let us work the case because once, you know, at five years, if you haven't solved the case, that's unfair to the families. It's unfair to the victim. And what happens if they're still alive? We do know cases where they, the children are still alive or the adults are still alive because they're found later, right? So I know they lose sleep with it. It's not the police fault, honestly, it isn't. But we have to do something as citizens to make it stop. Like you get five years and let's let somebody else in there who's trusted with your department to look at the evidence, find what new technology can be done. Let's go interview these people. Let's start moving on this. We can't let it keep getting colder to 1976, like my other case, right? Because it won't. If there's not someone pushing, it's going to go cold. And it, you can only do the, you know, that pushing for so long. It's, it's time consuming and, and it drains and it ruins families because I can tell you tens of stories that uh, the parents, you know, separate or that, you know, the children are neglected because they're, you know, in deep grief trying to find the other child. So it, it does a lot to a family. There's a lot of victims there, not just the victim that's missing. 
Do you know that when it does come to solving crimes and cases, how does Hawaii compare to, to the rest of the nation? Oh, I don't know. I don't know. I haven't looked into that, but someone, the department should know that, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. I, I don't know. I, didn't, I haven't looked into that, but it'd be interesting to know. Or um, do you know what state is really successful in? You know, I don't. I don't think they really release things like that because we, we all have cases that, you know, are unsolved. Mm -hmm. Um but you still have to keep working them. And, and again, with technology, have that DNA, have that, um, that information retested. I had a case that I did for the STARS network and, um, and it was called wrong man, where there's a person in custody. So I do a lot of innocent project type cases where the person's, um, you know, an innocent person in custody. And so with today's technology, and the person's still saying, I'm innocent and here's why I don't fit into this scenario. My body's too big. There's no way I could have been in there. Mechanically, I don't fit. I, you know, I don't have any motive to do that. I've never done anything like that before. Um, and we have DNA that can be tested. Why the heck not? And I know there's a big hurdle for that. And, um, but that's, it's really just not fair. It's not fair to them. Like one case, uh, Angie Dodge, I was helping helping the mother on that case. And the person um, was incar incarcerated for 20 years, convicted of her uh, murder. And he was not like, you know, when I first met her through another uh, production company, I said, who had eyes on her? You know, he, this person didn't. He, he lived on the other side of this, you know, the city, but it ended up being the neighbor that lived direct, directly across the street. And he suddenly moved a couple of months later, but it was a case where, you know, it was 1996 and this child's been, um, you know, dead and murdered viciously. And who would have done that? Not somebody that, you know, she maybe knew, right? But here's somebody that recently moved across the street and he was right there. And so DNA solved that one too. Um, so, yeah. But again, you know, going back in and re-examining the evidence and doing you know, DNA and what we call genetic genealogy, and then reformulating um, the scenario and with the new DNA results, put together the, the family of the person's DNA. So, yeah, that's how they solved the one in Louisiana. I, mean, that was, I have a feeling sometimes it's hard to turn off the work, huh? <laughs> I don't sleep. Actually, if it wasn't for, you know, we have another person in our business group that has these CBD oil drops. If it wasn't for that, I wouldn't be able to sleep. Seriously, because you are, you get, I don't, I don't want to miss anything, right? Right. Oh, I'll sleep when I'm dead, right? Oh, we're thankful for you. Like, you get, you're such an important part that I don't think people understand. Thank you. This facet of this process, I don't think they know that that's an option, right? You, they don't. Your services, yeah. So this is so eye-opening, and I think it would give a lot of families a little bit more hope, right? <laughs> right. Pick you out, yeah. So, yeah, gosh, it, it, it it makes it tough for them, you know, because you know I'm not cheap, but I'm not expensive when it comes to that, and I do a lot of pro bono work. I just did some the other day on a case, a uh, real old homicide here. Uh, on the island. So that's still working on that. And so I, you know, didn't charge her anything for that, but let's, let's start back at the basics. Let's start, you know, going back over it. So yeah. how much longer do you think you're going to do this? I don't know. You know, I, it's so weird. My husband and I always say that our friends that are retired, he's a little <laughs> bit older than I am, but our friends that are retired, they're boring to talk to. And I hope they don't watch <laughs> because they are, they don't have anything. You know what I mean? They go to the store, they go to the doctor's appointments. They, you know, don't have something else, you know, going on. So I don't know. We don't know how to turn it off. 
My husband's mm. actually got legislation pending for him getting his license here in, in uh, Hawaii because he's licensed in two states, but yet he can't get his license here because he took the test so long ago, right? It doesn't matter that he's had 40 years of proven uh, dentistry and, you know, five dental offices over the years and currently licensed in two states. It's difficult for him to get his license here. I should have asked this. I should have asked this earlier. But so, do private investigators approach the person if they're interested and they see that there could be new leads, or do you wait mm -hmm. until you're contacted either by police or or an attorney? That's that's a really good point because sometimes it can be con uh, conceived or looked at um, as uh, ambulance chasing. You know, like we're looking for a case, mm -hmm. but I put it out there um, that I can help. Um, but I don't, sometimes that just doesn't come across right. It's just like an attorney calling somebody or writing a letter saying, you know, I can help you. Well, that looks like you're kind of what they call ambulance chasing, but it's mm -hmm. really not. It's kind of like, I can really help you, but I usually will go around that person to get it to that person. Like you should probably call Deborah and see if she can help you with that. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But yeah, it can be construed that way. Yeah. So all of your work, Deborah, again, I know we talked about this a bunch of times now, but it's just, it's so important. It's a critical part of the community too, right? That, that service you're providing. Mm -hmm. For any of our listeners who think like, oh, I wonder if I have any other relatives or just curious, or maybe they're adopted or Hanai, you call it in Hawaii too. Do you um, have any suggestions? Um, should they try and take a DNA test or do, is it better to reach out to someone like you or go onto a site? Mm -hmm. Well, I always suggest taking a DNA test. Um, Ancestry has the largest database. Um, there are other ones too, but what happens, and most people don't know this, is like if they take a test at 23andMe, which is another big leading company, and your relatives are on Ancestry, you'll never find the two because the companies don't talk. Mm. You upload your results from Ancestry or 23andMe to other sites, but those two major players don't cooperate to each other. So you can, you can miss somebody uh, by not um, going there. And I found actually two uh, brothers I never knew I had, and now a sister whose daughter actually turned in her test today. She's had it for a couple of months, but she turned it in today because she's really, she's ready now. Her mother had passed away, but it was somebody that I actually knew uh, by name that was going to be my father's daughter, but records get released all the time. And so I was able to find their marriage certificate and then, yeah, she ran off with the baby and my dad never knew what happened to her. So, yeah. And so, and then two brothers I never knew, but they had passed away and then their children wanted to find out about their heritage from their father's side. And they took the DNA test and they came up as half paternal nieces or nephews to me. Well, I know exactly what that is. So get this. So 40% of the people that take a DNA test is the average. They never look at the relative finder. They look at if they're Irish or German or Japanese, they never look to see what it is that they are uh, or the relatives. So, oh. I mean, so what happened with the last one and actually she does work and uh, volunteer work with me on one of my uh, sites, but she had taken the DNA test because she was an only child and her par parents had passed away. And so she took it just to find out if she was Irish. Well, she was not Irish, just a little bit Irish, but a lot of other things that were, um, you know, my heritage because my father was her father's father. So, and then when I contacted her, um, I, she says, no, uh, no, no, I don't think so. And I said, well, I never knew my dad went to Georgia, but apparently he did. So <laughs> this is how it works. And then uh, I showed her a picture and, uh, we could get past for sisters. In fact, people think that I look more like each other. We look like more like each other than my own full siblings. 
So yeah, yeah. So she does actually volunteer work for me now. She's awesome. That you're it's sharing very, so yeah. fascinating. Oh my goodness. She read a book. Yeah. On that note, we do like to end with an inspirational quote if you have one to share tonight. Uh, well, I would just say that never give up, you know, never give up, never give in and, you know, seek justice for everyone, you know, in your family or, or your loved ones. So never give up, never give in. Like that. So good. Thank That's you for so having fun. me. This was fun. Yeah. Thank you so much. You're such a wealth of uh, knowledge, a uh, wealth of interesting, uh, you know, experiences and stories. It's just really fascinating and amazing and opened my eyes to something that I didn't really know much about, but I often was so curious to learn more about. And I, I still am, but thank I'll you. For we can talk about more topics. Yeah. <laughs> and we're looking forward to watching you on Nancy Grace too. And hearing more about that, that Hawaii story as well. So just a reminder to our listeners, um, you guys are going to be filming on Valentine's Day. Um, can you reveal what areas? In yeah, um, Orange County, we're going back to where she was murdered, Orange County, California, uh, okay. and where she's buried. Yeah. Okay. And then it'll air sometime in? Probably summer. Yeah. Summer. So, okay. We'll be on the lookout for that. And yeah. Deborah, can you remind everyone too? I think um, you already filmed that History Channel, yeah, right? Show. So, what was yeah. that one about, and when is that coming out too? Um, the first one is about the Somerton Man. It's kind of like there. It's Australia's Amelia Earhart kind of story. It's a legend that you know lasted forever. It's a man who um, was never identified, and that's that story. And then um, also the next one is the family that was um, died in a house fire that were their bodies were never discovered, and that was a 1945 story. So, um, and that one, the name escapes me right now, but it shouldn't, <laughs> but I can get it back. <laughs> but uh, that was another uh, family story where the, you know, they go by the assumption that the children were, you know, you know, that deceased in the, in the fire, but did they really get five children in a fire? You're going to find something in a house fire. Um, yeah, they never were, were found. And there's a lot of corruption that went along with that with life insurance policies. And yeah, so then the family went crazy trying to find their children over the years and people would always uh, come up and say oh that's my child here here's the child or I know where they're at and they would chase all these false leads so yeah yeah so what is the name of that what happens when you get old huh? oh what is the name of the show that, oh that it's called um history's mysteries and it's okay. a it's they're in their third season on the history channel yeah okay so I'll that's this summer as well right yeah 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 are there any trailers out that we could probably view online since we're we're so interested? <laughs> um, not on those two, um, on those shows, but the one that I already filmed that's already been shown uh, last year, that's on the Stars Network and it's called Wrong Man. And it was season two, episodes five and six. And that was with Joe Berlinger, who does a lot of the Netflix uh, shows uh, and documentaries. So yeah, I watched those though. Do you post any clips or, or pictures of your work or? Yeah, I do. I have a Instagram page, um, the busy PI 808 investigations and, and also Facebook that people can find me on there. I'm pretty wide open. Um, you know, open book. Um, I always like to be able to, you know, find people or have people be able to find me. So, mm -hmm. so if I contact you, it's for a reason that I'm looking for something. So. <laughs> All right. That gives oh. a lot of us hope, right? Hope. Yes. Thanks yes. for providing, putting, putting oh. that out there. This is Thank you. 
Make sure while you do. I got chicken yeah. skin tonight. I, I know, me too. Yeah, I kind of yeah. did too. Ooh, I kind of did you, too. I, I, I did too. And then, you know, it's it's really true about what we're all saying about you being a reassuring force out there, um, you know, in a presence. Thanks so much. You know, we appreciate your specialty and what you bring and, and what you offer and, and your insight and uh, bringing justice and reuniting families. I mean, that's just everything that people long for and need and are looking for. for. So for someone like you to be able to provide that and bring that, that really means a lot. So thank you so much, yeah. Deborah. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. And and we're, to do it. No, yeah, we're so grateful that you joined us today and also just for your, just, just her presence and your energy. And again, like I told you girls that she's just, besides everything else is a good person, you know, at, at, the, at the core <laughs> of all of that. No, truly, truly. So right. just really, really, grateful you're in our community here in Hawaii. Oh, thank you. Uh, we've been coming here for 20 years vacationing and um, yeah, found a home and they told me I couldn't get it. So I rolled up my sleeve, <laughs> went to the bankruptcy court and I went and appeared and won the house in the auction. So yeah. So yeah, don't tell Deborah she can't do something. <laughs> Wait, let me learn the process. Yeah. Found you a have nice to know realtor. how. Yeah, found a realtor <laughs> that helped me. Nicole, shout out to Nicole Lemus. <laughs> agent she's like i don't know how to do it either but we similar personalities rotarian mentality and she goes we'll figure it out together and i flew back a couple of times we went to court i bid got the house so. see that's another skill set that you have <laughs> i didn't even know i wanted that one but but yeah so half the value of the home there's a lot of homes that um are up for auction so yeah just gotta Wow. I really hope that our viewers listening are inspired and can feel the same, you know, sense of energy that Deborah brought just right here on the podcast and that determination and that will to succeed and that drive. I mean, it's so powerful and I, I feel it from you right now. And I hope that all of our listeners feel that too. And so, yeah, it's true. Don't lose hope, you guys. And, um, you know, take a step forward and uh, don't give up. Just like Deborah said, really powerful words to live by. Thanks so much, Deborah, for joining Thank us you. on The Mothership. We really appreciate you again. And we're definitely looking forward to your shows coming up because you've gotten us all on edge. <laughs> so we'll be looking out for that. And until then, you take care and everybody else out there listening. Thanks so much for joining us once again for an episode of Mothership. We'll see you next week. Take care, everybody, and stay safe. Aloha. Bye. Thank Bye. you. Yes, we're going to break up down.